My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Evan Balgord. In the last few years, Canada has seen a dramatic upsurge in street-level activity by a spectrum of groups that are, variously, white supremacist, white nationalist, far-right, neo-Nazi, violently misogynist, anti-Muslim, or otherwise overtly hateful. On the one hand, this is happening in most Western countries. In the last five years, many groups in North America and Europe have begun to make skillful use of online strategies to recruit and radicalize members, particularly young white men. The election of Donald Trump in the United States, and the presence of overt white nationalists in prominent positions in the White House, further energized these groups, prompting increased brazenness in overt public activity, including greater frequency of organized demonstrations and violence. On the other hand, this is not in the least a new phenomenon in Canada. After all, Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, was an ardent white supremacist. In the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan had upwards of 25,000 members in Saskatchewan and elsewhere on the prairies. A range of fascist, white supremacist, and neo-Nazi groups persisted through the decades after that, on through the resurgence led by the Heritage Front in the 1990s, and the various sects and grouplets documented by the volunteers at the Anti-Racist Canada blog more recently. Of course, overtly proclaimed racism is only the most visible manifestation of white supremacy. So much about life in Canada is organized in ways that harm black people, indigenous people, and people of color, from the country's very basis as a settler colonial project, to the workings of everything from policing, to the economy, to the media, to borders, to education. So combating overt hate groups must be seen as only one part of a much broader anti-racist and anti-colonial politics. Nonetheless, in this moment when the far right has more political influence than it has had globally since the Second World War, combating white supremacist, white nationalist, far right, violently misogynist, anti-Muslim, or otherwise overtly hateful groups is urgently necessary. From the famous Battle of Christie Pitts in Toronto in 1933, to the diligent work of anti-racist action chapters against the Heritage Front in the 1990s, to mobilizations by local anti-fascist groups today, one element of that has always been direct confrontation in the streets. But that is far from all that we need. At least one other component in the struggle against hate groups is offered by a new organization called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. It brings together journalists, leaders from within targeted communities, scholars, and activists. Modeled loosely on the Southern Poverty Law Center in the United States, the network's goal is to do investigative journalism on hate groups and related individuals, and to supply that information in a strategic way to community groups, media, and law enforcement as part of multi-pronged campaigns to shut hate groups down. In the short time since it launched, it has already been part of efforts that have shut down Canada's most prominent neo-Nazi podcast, exposed several leading Canadian figures on the far right, 
provided information to local anti-fascist organizers who have confronted hate group mobilizations in the streets, and been part of various efforts that have interfered with the ability of far-right groups to recruit and radicalize new members. Evan Balgord is the executive director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. He talks with me about the current state of organized white supremacy in Canada today, about the work of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, and about the broader struggle to defeat the current upsurge in hate groups and hate group activity. My name is Evan Balgord. I'm the executive director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. I am a researcher and a journalist, and I almost exclusively cover hate groups, but I also have an interest in press freedom as well. The organization, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, is made up of 17-plus experts in Canada on hate groups and hate crimes, including some court-recognized experts, some journalists, some of Canada's leading academics in the field, and a large number of people that actually stood up to the Heritage Front, a neo-Nazi group that existed in the 90s, have also come forward, as well as individuals who are leaders in communities that are targeted by hate. From a practical point of view, we do investigative journalism on hate groups and related individuals, and then we work with media, with community organizations as well to get the word out, and we also at times have provided information on hate groups to law enforcement. I was just kicking around trying to find a beat, trying to do some reporting, and the event that made me really focus on hate groups in this current climate, in February of 2017, I went to the Rebel Media anti-M103 conference, M103 being the motion to condemn Islamophobia that the Liberal government put forward. And I'd seen a lot of hate, most of it directed at Muslims, swirling online. I was following that. When I went to the Rebels anti-M103 conference, I really saw that this was not just limited to online. It was going to become a street-level hate movement directed at Muslim folks. You could tell from the energy in that room. There were almost monthly rallies, and I started to cover them. A number of us who are now involved in the organization were already working together either collaboratively on individual projects or we might have been working on things in our own little silos but talking amongst each other. So we all kind of know each other. And we were looking around Canada and we didn't see anything in Canada like the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't efforts to combat far-right groups or hate groups or fascism. There have been. I mean, back in the 90s, anti-racist action had chapters across Canada that would share information and stand up to these groups. There's community organizations and anti-fascist groups that stand up to far-right groups in their own communities. And there are some efforts to share information across Canada, like the blog Anti-Racist Canada. So there were all of these elements, but there was no like one big professional organization that could speak as a trusted voice on hate groups and hate crimes to all audiences and be able to actually professionalize, raise a bit of money, have staff and carry forward just a strict agenda of we monitor hate groups and we try to counter them in exposing them. And we decided if we want this thing to exist, we have to start it. So we did. There's a lot of people I could thank for that, but I'll limit it to one for the moment, and that's Bernie Farber. He's the former CEO of the Mosaic Institute, and he's the former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress back when there was this large progressive Jewish organization that did stand up to racism and stuff before it turned into other organizations. So Bernie was able to put together all of these people and get the ball rolling on this organization. Lay out more of the context for that. Has there been an upsurge in far-right and overtly racist activity here, and how has that been playing out? Some people call it the Trump effect, that racists and bigots have become emboldened during the campaign of following the election of U.S. President Donald Trump. That's true, but that's not the full story in the Canadian context. In the 90s, we had this hate group called the Heritage Front and other neo-Nazi groups, and they were shut down by a combination of factors. You know, we had a Jewish community launching legal offenses against these groups. 
We had the anti-racist activists, ARA, and anti-fascists standing up to them in the streets, which put pressure on. And we had law enforcement eventually charging a number of these individuals. And as a result, there was multiple elements of our civil society laying pressure on, and these groups kind of collapsed. Things went quiet, but they didn't disappear. And that's the really important thing to note. The blog Anti-Racist Canada, which is a volunteer-driven effort, and they'll be the first to tell you that they can't capture everything. So when I give you this number, know that it's probably a low number. But they've documented something like 85 instances of violent criminality from these far-right hate groups in the interim period where a lot of people were watching this stuff, say, between 2005 and 2015. So where did the current new upswing come from? The general election in 2015 was when a lot of these groups got started online. A lot of them really latched on to then Prime Minister Stephen Harper using the term old stock Canadians. A lot of them still describe themselves this way, and to them it means white and European Canadians, and to them it means that white and European Canadians, by virtue of having been here longer or by virtue of their background or skin color, having more right to have a say in the direction of the country than other Canadian citizens. And just generally speaking as a trend, and the FPLC has documented this in the United States, when somebody is elected who is seen as being pro-multicultural or like pro-diversity or quote-unquote liberal, there is usually a rise in, and I'm speaking in the U.S. context here, but like militia groups, far-right extremist groups, etc., as a backlash. In Canada, we kind of saw the same thing around the election of Trudeau. We saw a rise in the number of groups which were professing overtly hateful things towards Muslims. So groups like the Soldiers of Odin and Pegida start up little chapters in Canada. And we also saw U.S. groups start up chapters in Canada, like the Three Percenters, which is like this anti-Muslim militia styled group. So they existed here around 2015, 2016. Then came the election of U.S. President Donald Trump, and these groups exploded in how often they were posting, their activity, the number of members that they had, and even the number of groups proliferated. Then came M103. So M103, the Liberal government, puts forward this motion condemning Islamophobia. And for a lot of these far-right groups, which primarily target Muslims, this was their lightning rod, and it got them on the ground, holding demonstrations, often monthly, they're still ongoing, to demonstrate against, you know, no, no, Sharia law in Canada and the Islamification of Canada, etc. That's kind of how it evolved. What do the core activities of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network look like? The core is investigative journalism. We know what groups have engaged in violence in the past, aspire to violence, use rhetoric that is extremely racist and overtly hateful, etc. And we monitor those groups. And as a little side note, we focus on overt hate. And we know that what we're trying to do is a band-aid solution. We're not directly tackling systemic racism or societal racism. I hope some of the work that we do has impacts there. But we're really focused on overt hate. Not because it's, you know, the only thing that is important and needs to be addressed, but just because that's our niche. So we monitor these groups. We watch what they put out on social media. They put out a ton of content. They have their own media ecosystem. They will interview each other. And, you know, we listen to these interviews. We watch these interviews. We transcribe them. They comment on each other's walls. They do a lot of infighting. We kind of monitor that as well. And sometimes we get access to their less public spaces. And we use that information as well. We publish some of that information to let the public know in advance of a rally, like the one that was to be held last week by the Worldwide Coalition Against Islam. Uh, He's referring to an attempt by a hate group called the Worldwide Coalition Against Islam, or WCAI, to hold a rally on August 11th in Toronto that was prevented both by far-right infighting and by a successful anti-fascist mobilization. We'll publish the information on that. We'll also contact law enforcement again and be like, why haven't these people been charged yet? Because the leadership of WCAI 
has, in my opinion, absolutely broken Section 318 and 319 of the Criminal Code. 318 dealing with calls to genocide, 319 dealing with the spreading of hate propaganda that dehumanizes people and may lead to violence. We also took the step of endorsing the counter demonstration that weekend. Not all groups that stand up to hate groups are necessarily willing or comfortable or best positioned to speak to media. We aim to act as a trusted voice back and speak to everybody. So out of necessity, we have to be kind of mainstream, probably more mainstream than some anti-racist activists would like. But that's the position that we have to occupy because we are an incorporated entity. We could be sued. But we also have the benefits of being an incorporated entity. So, you know, we can speak as a trusted voice in some things. We can raise money and use it. We can stand up to these groups in some other ways that more grassroots groups probably aren't able to. We also do want to engage in more legal action. But again, the amount that we can do is dependent on the resources that we have. And we do a lot with very little. We had some big successes. I mean, the credit for this first thing I'm going to mention goes to the Montreal Anti-Fascists and the Montreal Gazette for publishing it. They exposed the identity of the alt-right neo-Nazi known as Zyger. Now, Zyger was the number two guy at this big alt-right website called The Daily Stormer. And he was producing hate propaganda. After he was exposed, he went into hiding. Very shortly thereafter, we caught another two that were kind of aligned with that same movement. So there was this neo-Nazi podcast in Canada called This Hour Has 88 Minutes, a play on words from This Hour is 22 Minutes, except in neo-Nazi parlance, 88 stands for Heil Hitler. So this podcast had put out like 90 episodes, tons of guests, and it had two hosts, League of the North and Axe in the Deep, that I was very interested in finding. So through a combination of going through their forum posts and listening to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of racist podcasts, we were able to put together enough demographic information that they would reveal that we were able to track them down. This took months of work. I worked with Vice Canada, particularly Max Lamoureux, on this. Prominent figures in this organization have to like vouch for each other and vouch for other people because they do try to stay anonymous. So taking down some of the big ones can have a large impact, which I'll speak to in a moment. Anyways, we exposed them with Vice. We also provided some information on them to law enforcement. But at the same time, we also asked a counter-radicalization organization to reach out to them and their family and try to offer them some help. It's incredibly important to hold these people accountable. That's number one most important thing. But then if it's possible to also extend some compassion and maybe get them out of a life of hate, that would be the ideal outcome. But first and foremost, the most important thing is holding them accountable. So we found this individual. When we found them, they shut down the podcast, so they deleted all 90 episodes, and they deleted a lot of their forum posts. They had like tens of thousands of forum posts as well on the site called therightstuff.biz, which was another major alt-right neo-Nazi forum. It was international in scope, but also has a fairly significant Canadian presence. And shortly after these Canadian investigations, we knew from watching their traffic and what they were saying that people were afraid that they would be next. People were afraid of being exposed. And they shut down the forum. They made one of their largest forums go from public to private, which is a huge victory. I mean, if they can't reach as many people in the public, it hurts their ability to radicalize and recruit. There might be an individual who's ready to be radicalized, but if they can't connect with anybody else, that process can't really be taken to its fruition. So I believe strongly that shutting down these public spaces are very important. And of course, they're fleeing around now trying to find new places where they can talk and discuss because they've been driven off many, many, many platforms. And this has significantly hurt their ability to recruit and to organize. And then the third neo-Nazi we found is actually former Canadian Armed Forces member. As a bit of background, I need to give a little bit of information on what Adam Waffen Division is. Adam Waffen Division is this alt-right neo-Nazi group that came out of the United States. 
They may have had 70 members in the United States, and they're organized in terror-like cells. They were responsible, allegedly, for five deaths in the course of eight months. These guys don't mess around. They also have chapters in Europe and here in Canada. So they are here. And one of them who we found, an individual who's going by the name of Alba online, was a former soldier who was stationed in Nova Scotia. And he had called for, you know, the genocide of the Jewish people, just overt racism and hate. So we exposed those individuals. Those have been some of our largest successes because they have been a great blow to the alt-right neo-Nazis in Canada. Now, that podcast is gone. It's like whack-a-mole. We whacked those two down. And another guy popped up trying to start up another podcast, which at the moment has virtually no views, but we're keeping an eye on it. So yeah, that's kind of the work that we do. And for example, there's this rally with the Worldwide Coalition Against Islam. You know, we helped get the word out. We spent a bit of money on some Facebook promotions so that people knew that this anti-Muslim hate rally was going to be held in Toronto last weekend. And I hope that our efforts in getting the word out and directing people to that counter demonstration helped put boots on the ground, so to speak, in standing up to those groups. And we know that they canceled the rally for two reasons, one being that they saw the planned counter demonstration and the other being that there was a bunch of far right infighting. So yeah, that kind of takes us through some of our more major successes since we got started in about May. Elaborate on the importance of online tools in the current upsurge of the far right and on ways that anti-fascist efforts can counter that. They need their online platforms. I mean, the Daily Stormer, one of their quasi-newsy-ish websites, which also has a forum associated with it. The Daily Stormer was bragging about targeting teenagers for radicalization and recruitment. And we've given the workshops in some schools and stuff, and we've spoken to teachers about this. So they are actively targeting teenagers. I know from looking at some of these forums, like how old are these kids that they're recruiting? I've seen it as young as 12. 12 is an outlier, though. I'd say generally 14, but more so like 16 to 19 to 21 to 22. Around there is when people kind of get involved. And the age range of these alt-right neo-Nazis ranges from like 16 to 35 generally speaking. So yeah, they're trying to like radicalize and recruit in schools. And they do that by creating online content, which is specifically targeted to teenagers. And they need their platforms to do this. Like they need to trust that they can talk about whatever they want to talk about on their chat platforms like Discord without there being any consequences. They need to trust that, you know, they have forums that they can log into every day and their accounts will still be there and they can vouch for each other because a lot of them only know each other by online usernames and they need to vouch for each other. Whenever you take a platform down, like I think we contributed to in the case of the rightstuff.biz, they can't vouch for each other as much anymore because they're anonymous. You really value their anonymity more so than like the skinheads did back in the day. The already neo-Nazis are more operably mobile, more educated, and they don't want their neo-Nazism to impact their professional and personal and social lives and things like that. Newsflash, it does, because you will be found out. When people rise in prominence, their real identities come out, period. That's how it works. And they need their platform. The SPLC is helping a woman with a lawsuit against the Daily Stormer and Andrew Anglin, who is now like on the run. The number two writer of the Daily Stormer, Zyger, is now on the run. The Daily Stormer's forums are now private, I believe. So they're losing all of their platforms. They're too afraid to use Discord anymore, which is previously where they would do a lot of their organizing. Discord is like a chat platform mostly used by gamers, but really got used a lot by the alt-right as well. But there was a lot of Discord leaks, you know, infiltrating their servers and publishing everything. So they had to flee off those Discord platforms. So their ability to organize and to have chats and personal conversations was also diminished. And of course, this doesn't mean that they can't know who each other is in real life and text and stuff like that. It just makes it harder for them to sustain a broader, decentralized and anonymous movement when you keep taking down their anonymous platforms. 
the more they get driven into the dark, dark recesses of the internet, the less they're able to actually like reach the public and radicalize and recruit more people. And people are sometimes scared. They're like, ooh, aren't you just driving them underground? And like, doesn't that just mean they're more dangerous and you don't know what's going on? No, that's not true. For a few reasons. One, we still know what's going on. We're still watching them. And also, when you like drive something underground, it just means that they can't radicalize and recruit as much and can't grow as much. So I don't buy that argument. Driving them off those platforms has proven to be very effective. As you mentioned earlier in the interview, your organization focuses specifically on combating overt, organized white supremacy and hate, which is only one way in which racism shapes our world and our lives. How do you see your specific niche related to broader struggles against systemic racism? All kind of efforts to combat racism, whether societal, systemic, or overt, I think are interconnected. So one of the things that I think has played a key role in this new up of hate groups and hate group activity has been a normalization of these racist, hateful attitudes. Think back, let's say 10 years ago. If somebody went out on the street and said something like, what did Trump say about Mexicans? If you think about somebody just like saying that in a public square 10 years ago, there would be more of a public reaction to it than there would be if somebody went and did it today. I think that these racist, anti-diversity, ultra-patriot in a very destructive and a very negative way attitudes have become more normalized. And you see that because people feel safe expressing those views, first online and then offline. When they say stuff like that in the public space, other people see them say it, and they're like, oh, we can say that now. So people who might have privately held some of these attitudes and stuff before, they're coming out. The, and I don't like using this term, but I think everybody understands when I use it, so that's why I use it, but the dinner table racist, you know, that uncle that you don't really want to interact with. Those people are now finding each other and going and holding rallies. They're comfortable being hateful to a wider public. So I do think that there has been like this normalization of these racist, hateful attitudes. That's kind of what I mean when I talk about societal racism. And I think the ultimate expression of what has happened both systemically and societally is this overt stuff. So those two, like they feed into the overt stuff. But I also think that people seeing overt hate and racism in the public square also feeds into more systemic and societal racism. It's a dynamic process that feeds each other. And I think you have to address it on multiple fronts. I think one way to help break that process is to address it at the overt level. So when people are overtly hateful in a way that actually breaks our criminal law and they're held accountable, I think other people see that and they're like, I better not do that. I think people see that and it might stifle the racism a bit. So when we manage to expose that they say things like the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim, I think it hurts their movement. I think it keeps people away who might not be willing to go to that level of extreme and it just disrupts that whole environment. And I think that disruption of the overt environment and sending signals, you know, strong signals that I think the anti-fascists also help send when they go and physically stand up to these groups, send the signal that what they're doing is not acceptable in our society, period, stop it. So I think that addressing it on an overt level would also have implications for the societal and systemic stuff because people see it's not acceptable. Talk about the role that misogyny plays in the politics of these racist far-right formations. Misogyny plays both a gateway to more hardcore race radicalization. And of course, the misogyny gets more hardcore as they go through the whole radicalization process. But it often starts with awful misogyny. Seems almost to be a prerequisite. I mean, we know that the alt-right movement kind of came out of Gamergate. Uh, And Gamergate was a major online harassment campaign that started in 2014, initially targeting a number of women in the video game industry. And in some extent also kind of came out of this MRA, incel, manosphere. 
internet with hate directed at women. And being anti-feminist is actually where the original idea of red-pilling came from. Red-pilling, just generally meaning the radicalization or recruitment. Like if you red-pilled somebody, you radicalized them. Or if somebody got red-pilled, they got radicalized. The term originally came from convincing people that, quote-unquote, you know, feminism is cancer. So being anti-feminism and then just being anti-women in general, which, you know, virtually undistinguishable the way that they use it, is a key factor of the alt-right. There's no way I can explain this better than to explain what I heard on this one alt-right podcast, you know, this hour is 88 minutes, what I was talking about. They would say horrible things about different racial groups in Canada. But when they talked about women in their own movement, it took on a new level of hate. This hate that they were sharing about women in their own movement was actually the most virulent hate I heard on that podcast, even with all like the race stuff going on. The misogyny is terrifying. What's coming up next for the Canadian Anti-Hate Network? There's a handful of demonstrations that are happening. On September the 8th, Pegida, that anti-Muslim organization, wants to do something. It's probably going to be in Toronto. They're mulling, doing things elsewhere in the GTA. And also in September, the Worldwide Coalition Against Islam wants to return to Toronto, although they can't organize their way out of a wet paper bag. So I am unsure whether that will actually happen. However, we will be monitoring it closely because we have to take threats like that seriously. And in the short term, you know, we are looking to compile and publish profiles of hate groups as a resource to the community, as a resource to law enforcement, and as a resource to the media to help them. Media often are very reluctant to characterize a group, let's just say it accurately, you know, as, let's say, a neo-Nazi group or anti-Muslim group. So, you know, we will bite the bullet for them and we'll do that. We'll characterize them and then the media can be like, the Canadian anti-Ember calls them XYZ. And fine, if they need us to take the heat and put us on the line by characterizing them that way, we will. That's what we exist for. So we'll be publishing some profiles of some hate groups. And this is the unsexy part of it. We've been spending a lot of time just trying to keep up with the day-to-day. I mean, we have Faith Goldie running for mayor. According to the Canadian Anti-Hate Network's website, Faith Goldie is, quote, a prominent figure in the alt-right movement who associates with neo-Nazis, end quote. She's running for mayor of Toronto. The Jewish Defense League wanted to hold an event near where the Danforth shooting happened in Toronto at a mosque. It didn't ultimately end up happening. And the Jewish Defense League, or JDL, is a violent extremist organization designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center in the United States as a hate group. And then we had this August 11th WCAI wanted to have a rally. So that's just to say that our day-to-day just keeping on top of the events and the groups can be very difficult. And as I said, we don't have a lot of resources. So we need to spend some time on, you know, making sure our website works great, our email works great. We need to raise some money. We need to maybe apply for a couple grants because realistically, the work that we're doing, we need to have four to six people working full time in an office like a small nonprofit. And we're not there right now. We don't have the money for that. And we need those resources if we're going to be a serious force combating hate and racism. All the volunteer efforts that people across Canada do are exceptional. And I don't want to take away from any of that, but people should be paid for their work. And we do need paid professional staff to keep on top of this stuff. So we need money and we need to worry about some fundraising as well. We need to keep the work going. We need to raise some money. And then we need to move towards some of these more important lasting goals, like, you know, creating a database, like putting up these profiles of hate groups, like create educational resources, because a lot of this radicalization and recruitment is happening in schools and teachers are kind of on the front line. So there's a lot of work to be done and we need to ramp up our capacity as an organization to try to accomplish all those goals. You have been listening to my interview with Evan Balgord, the executive director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. To learn more about their work, go to antihate.ca. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.